Well, we have come to the end of the gospel meeting that has been planned. You've advertised for, you've planned for, you've prayed about, and now it's about to be over. But we're hopeful and expectant as as soldiers of Christ, as we just finished uh, singing about, that it's not going to be a matter of just this just becoming a precious memory. Now, what we're doing here is, shouldn't be a precious memory. It should be a lifestyle. And so that which we hopefully are learning or that which we are being reminded of and hopefully stirring or being stirred up, uh, that we will be encouraged to continue doing what we're doing or to do better at what we know we need to be doing, but that this will be this will be something that will springboard us towards uh, the community here and the work that's being supported here by the Lebanon congregation that much uh, much more good can be done through the efforts of this congregation. Lebanon congregation has a good reputation, and I now... Uh, now that my family's here, I expect it to have a better reputation. You know, now I'm a little prejudiced. I understand. You know, you've got to understand. I understand completely. Uh, but you have done well with your selection, and I wouldn't say that unless I unless I believed it. And because you see, that says something about my reputation if I don't tell the truth. And so. Uh, you have done well with your selection as far as the man and woman who are here to help you and the work. Uh, Brother Matt and Autumn, my daughter, they love the Lord and uh, they love his church. And I know that's the reputation of the congregation here, that you love the Lord and you love his church. And so you got a good match. And I expect to hear a lot of good things in the future concerning a lot more good things about the church here at Lebanon. Thank you for your hospitality while I've been here. The food today was excellent, and I understand uh, the explanation this morning about, you know, if you don't think they're good cooks here, just look at the husbands. That, uh, uh, definitely there's a lot of good cooks here, and uh, we like to have fellowship down at Branson. We have a third Sunday potluck. We have a first Wednesday uh, family night in which we bring desserts and, and, and finger foods, and we have a last Sunday night sandwich supper. And if I can think of something else that we can have to eat, you know, we'll do something else, you know. But we 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 enjoy eating and being together because, you know, we as Christians, we need to do things that will help us grow closer to one another. And how much easier can it be to grow closer than when we eat that good food? We're getting closer and closer every time we sit down. So come down and see us at Branson. Question I want you to think about to begin the lesson tonight. Why do parents punish their children? Why is it that we as parents would correct our children, to, to inflict upon them uh, circumstances that causes them to be uncomfortable. Why do we do that? 
Well, a parent who is honest about wanting what's best for the child will say, well, their behavior is not acceptable. Either it's dangerous, it's impolite, maybe disobedient, but it's behavior that's not acceptable. And so the point behind the correction is to get their attention. We want their behavior to change. Their behavior is not acceptable. And so because it's not acceptable, all I'm trying to do here is to get your attention so that your behavior will change. It needs to be acceptable. Acceptable to you as the parent and acceptable to God as a God-fearing parent. But when it comes to disciplining them, it's not supposed to be something that they enjoy. I mean, you ever had a child that you spanked and they turn around and look up and say, that didn't hurt. I had a couple of those that did that once. Because you see, when they turn around and they say, well, that didn't hurt, that's when you say, well, I obviously didn't do it right. Come back here. We'll do it again. Now, when my mama, when she's when she spanked, I didn't, you know, yeah, maybe I was a little smarter because I had older brothers and sisters that I learned from when it came to that. But, you know, I began hollering before she hit me the first time, you know. <laughs> and, and, and she didn't do any beating with us. She made us go out and, and break a switch. I may talk about that a little later. But the point is, Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 11 says, No chastening seems to be enjoyable for the present. But painful, no chastening, not to the person receiving it and not to the person that is giving it. There is no pleasure in chastening. It's painful. Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. So what's the goal of chastening? To yield the peaceable fruit. Of righteousness to get the attention of that child to change their behavior what's the motivation behind that as a parent the basic motivation it, we love our children we're motivated to discipline them because we love them now I've heard parents say things just like well I just love my child too much to make them uncomfortable Usually it has to do with giving them a spanking. I just love my child too much to see that to inflict pain upon them. No, you don't. You love yourself more than you love your child because you're not willing to do that because you don't want to be uncomfortable. How do I know that? God because God says so. Proverbs chapter thirteen, verse twenty four. He who spares his rod hates his son. No, I didn't say that. God said that. The parent that says, oh, I love my child so much, I could never inflict pain upon them by spanking them. Uh, No, you don't love them. God says you hate them. And as he continues, but he who loves him disciplines him promptly. Now, obviously, when God talks about using a rod, he's not talking about a two-by-four. He's obviously talking about something that will get the attention of that child. My mom's, her her favorite rod was go out and break me a switch. 
know, we'd have to break our own switch and come in there. You know, we call it the hickory switch. Whether it was off a hickory tree or not, it was always a hickory switch. And so we'd break a switch off. And if there was two of us in trouble, we'd have to break one for each other. And so when it was me and one of my sisters or brother, I usually tried to cut a tree down and bring it in there. You know? We'd had to bring our own switch in there. And if you tried loosening it up, you know, cracking it on the way in, and it broke too soon when she got busy, go get me another one. Why'd she do that? You know, it, it, it never broke any bones. It never left any bruises that, that didn't, you know, if, if there were any red streaks, which, believe me, there were always red streaks. If there weren't red streaks, she wasn't doing it right. There was always red marks on the legs when you finished, but they all went away. Now, why'd she do that? Because she loved us and she wanted our behavior to be acceptable. Acceptable to God. Why do we discipline as parents, even though it hurts? And yeah, it hurts. It hurts us as parents. I remember the first time I had to give my oldest daughter a spanking. She probably wasn't even bigger than Leandra, my granddaughter back there, when I really felt like uh, she knows she knows what no means. She knows, you know, when she, she's reaching up to grab something, I say, no. She knows it. And she reaches anyway and looks at me, and no. And she just looks at me and... And so I reached down there and popped that little chubby leg. And big old crocodile tears popped out, you know, and just streaming down her face. And it just broke my heart to see my little, my little baby, my firstborn daughter, you know, in pain. And I'm the one that inflicted that pain upon her. I felt horrible. And I still felt that way a few hours later when I had to pop her leg again. <laughs> it's not any fun. It hurts. But chastening is not pleasant, as the Hebrew writer tells us, but painful. But it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Now, I started out by talking about discipline where our children are concerned to try to lay the foundation about in the physical family what we do and why we do it. And we understand that it's something that is done because of love and because of the fact that we're trying to help and not hurt. The church is a family. And there are times, as in the physical family, there's going to be correction that needs to take place because, you see, we're dealing with human beings. We're dealing with the fact that the devil wants to get involved and, and as much as we try to keep him out, he worms his way into some of our lives sometimes. And so we need to be corrected. Why do we need to be corrected? Because of the fact that to be able to go to heaven, that has to take place. Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21. Paul talks about the works of the flesh. He says, now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outburst of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, reveries, and the like. 
Now, he just mentioned a whole lot of things that we sit there and go, yeah, those are bad things. And But he tells us that people that are involved in these things and things like these things, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So what he's saying is, and he's talking to brethren, he's saying, brethren, if you leave the world and then you go back into the world and live like the world and live for the world and the world is involved, in, you can't go to heaven. You can't inherit the kingdom of God. It's not going to happen. So when that happens, where one of our brothers or sisters are concerned in the church family, what's the first thing that should come to our mind? Well, oh, we don't want anybody like that around here. We need to get rid of them. Is that what we think when one of our children, you know, I've got five kids and one of them, I keep having to spank him. I think it's time to kick him out of the family. Is that the first thing that goes through our mind when we've got a child that you know that keeps needing more attention than the other ones? I'm so tired of fooling with this one. Can we get rid of him? Trade him for something else, you know? Parents don't think that way. Or at least they don't say it out loud. We're going to keep that kid because we love that kid and no matter how hard it is on us, we'll, we'll expend the energy to try to help that child to change and their behavior to be acceptable, righteous. Last thing in the world we'd ever think about is needing to remove a child from the home. So when we have someone in the church who is not living a way that's acceptable to God. They're not practicing righteousness. What is it that should come to our mind, first of all? I'm concerned about the spiritual welfare of this, my brother or sister. I want to see what I can do to help this brother or sister to make this correction so that they can go to heaven. Why should I feel that way? Because it's our responsibility. We looked at this early, but let's revisit these scriptures. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. What is it that Paul said here in writing to the brethren there at the churches of Galatia? He said that when a brother or sister, whoever it is, if any man... And it would be, this is generic, we'd refer to sisters too. If any brother or sister is overtaken in a trespass, we need to be trying to help them be restored. That's our goal. We're not trying to remove somebody from the family. We're trying to keep them in the family. We're doing what we can to make sure that our family is healthy. James chapter 5 verse 20. Let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Again, James is talking about a brother or sister who has left the path of righteousness and they've gone back into the world. And that's why he uses the language, turns a sinner. Someone who has gone back into a life of sin and we're trying to turn them from that life. And when that takes place, what happens? We've been involved in helping save a soul from death. Matthew chapter 18, our scripture reading tonight. Let's go there. Matthew chapter 18, 
begin in verse 15. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you've gained your brother. Now let's just pause right there a moment. If you know of a sin that your brother or sister has been overtaken by, you may say, well, other people know about this too. It's not a matter of do other people know about it before anything needs to be done by you. Ye who are spiritual, remember that back Galatians chapter 6? We talked about that the first night, I believe, at the meeting. Ye who are spiritual, restore such a one. Who are the spiritual? Only the people that are going to heaven. So who is it that's supposed to be involved in trying to restore the fallen brother or sister? Only the people that are going to go to heaven. It's everybody in the family's responsibility to help restore the fallen. And if we look and say, well, that's what elders do. That's what preachers do. That's what deacons do. That's what Bible class teachers do. That's what somebody other than anybody but me, you know, because I'm just a regular member here. Well, you better be a regular spiritual member because there'll be no one in heaven that's not spiritual. Ye who are spiritual, restore the one that has fallen. So do you know of a brother or sister right now in the church family that has been overtaken in some sin? Well, what is it that Jesus said is supposed to take place? It's our responsibility to try to keep them healthy and whole in the family. So what do we do? Well, I get on the phone and I talk to two or three of the other members and say, you know, we really need to be concerned about brother so-and-so because maybe you didn't know it, but they've been overtaken in this trespass. And I'm just talking to you because I'd like to have a little spiritual consultation here and maybe some advice that know what I need to do. Well, no, you don't. Jesus has already told you what to do. And the first thing he said is, it's, no, it's nobody else's business. If you know of some sin that has taken place, Jesus said, go to your brother. And just between you and him alone, discuss the fact that he has been overtaken by this trespass. And if he hears you, you've gained your brother. There's no reason for anybody else to know. It doesn't need to go any further. You've talked to them, you've expressed love and concern for them, and they've recognized that what they're doing is wrong. You pray together for God's forgiveness, and if it's not a public sin where anybody else needs to be involved, that's the end of the matter. And what have you done? You've chastened a brother or sister. You've chastened them, but you've done it in a spirit of gentleness, as Paul has instructed and what have you done? You saved a soul from death. You've, co- you've helped cover a multitude of sins. You've kept someone in the family. And that's the goal. The goal behind discipline is to keep the family together, not break it up. But Jesus says the circumstances may not end up that way. So what if, verse 16... But if he will not hear, 
Take with you one or two more that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. Now it's time to get get one or two others other than yourself involved. What's the purpose of getting them involved? Not for consultation, not for advice, but to have a witness as you go so that every word is going to be established so that if... There needs to be any discussion other than about what is said. There are witnesses there so that there's no confusion as to now who said what. Everything is going to be established by those witnesses. Sometimes things don't go like you'd like them to. And so a brother or sister is being approached and you're trying to talk to them about their soul and they don't, they don't appreciate the fact that you're there pointing out that, that their soul is in jeopardy and they decide to tell a story that's not anywhere close to the truth. Well, you have two or three witnesses and then at least you've got that on your side as far as on the side of righteousness. But why is it that you'd bring those two or three there? I mean, what's the purpose of going through it all? You've already talked to them, and he says, just go away. I'm not, I'm not changing. I don't believe I'm wrong, or even if I am wrong, I don't care. Just go away. Uh, well, okay. Done what I can do. No, you haven't. God says you get one or two other people, so that two or three of you are are going to be in the presence. And what's the purpose? You're going back to try to do what? To save a soul. You're trying to keep the family together. The purpose of the discipline, and you think about it, brethren, chastening is never pleasant. And while this person is not getting physical pain inflicted upon them from the visit, from the standpoint of of some sort of punishment as a spanking, if you've ever done anything like this, there's physical pain. My stomach hurts every time. I think sometimes, brethren, when they see me coming or see see elders coming, they, they sit there and go, I knew they'd be here. They just enjoy this kind of stuff. Yeah, we enjoy not being able to sleep well at night and thinking about those whom we're concerned about. We enjoy going and, and, and knowing that we're going to have to talk to someone about sin that's in their life, not knowing whether or not they are going to receive us and want to make those changes, not knowing whether it will be a pleasant experience or an unpleasant experience. Yeah, mm. Don't you like that feeling? Of course not. Chastening is not pleasant for anybody involved. So what are we doing? He wouldn't hear you by yourself, so you brought some witnesses with you. Not just to establish every word. Certainly that's going to take place. But now you've got brethren who are going to hear the story and when they realize, yes, He's been overtaken in a trespass. Now you've got two or three people that will plead with them. You need to repent. We want you to go to heaven, and you can't go to heaven living like this. Please repent of this sin. Now let me ask you, brethren, as we think about this, when we think about the the subject of church discipline, 
A lot of times, the first time, the first thing people think of when you just use that phrase, church discipline, first thought that comes in many people's minds is, oh, they're fixing to kick somebody out. Brethren, that's the last thing in the world, that church discipline that we want to have to take place when it, when it comes to church discipline. Because even when it comes to the point where we talk about where Jesus talks about someone needing to be removed, the purpose behind removing them is still to try to get them to come home. We're trying to keep the family together. Why is it that we spank that child? We're trying to get their attention. When the first person goes and talks to them, what are they doing? They're trying to get their attention so that the behavior would change. When the two or three others go back, what are they doing? They're trying to get that brother or sister's attention so that their behavior will change. We want to keep the family together. But what if they won't hear those two or three? Well, I mean, what else can we do? We tried. About this time, if it has something to do with uh, not attending the services like they ought to, sometimes you'll hear somebody say something like, well, you know, they withdrew from us, so we uh, there's nothing that we're accountable for. You know, they withdrew from us, and so there's nothing we can do. Yeah, that's what I read in the Bible that says when a brother's overtaken in a trespass, you're supposed to try to restore them unless, of course, they've withdrawn from you, and then you've got no responsibility. Really? But let's continue. Verse 17. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. Why? Why? Well, he goes on to say, but if he refuses even to hear the church. Well, hear the church do what? Let's talk about that just a moment. He wouldn't hear you when you went to talk to him about his soul to try to get him to repent. He wouldn't hear the two or three witnesses of you and the one or two others that went, so there's two or three there. He would not. You couldn't get his attention to get him to repent. And so now what's, what does Jesus say? He said, tell the whole family. It's time to get the whole church family involved. We have got a brother or sister in our family whose soul is at stake. Well, I hope you elders can do something about that. I'll be praying about it. Well, we need to be praying about it. But praying to God is not all that needs to be done. Certainly that's important, but you've got to understand God's not going to reach down because we pray and say, oh, they've prayed that your heart will change, and so, yeah, now you'll accept it. God's not going to make anybody do anything against their will. What we need to be praying about, and considering the circumstances, Lord, help those who are going to be going to talk, including myself, to this individual, blesses with the wisdom to know what we need to say from your word because the power is in your word. And the tact to be able to say it in a way that will be most effective. And that, we, it, that in a way that, it, that the love that we have for them and for you will come through. And if their heart is still soft, bless us 
and our abilities to be able to say and do what you would have us to say and do according to your word so that we can help this brother or sister come home. Yeah, that's what we ought to be praying. God's not going to make them come home. We need to be praying about the effort that we need to be putting forth where they're concerned. But he says if they refuse to hear the church, the church... Um, who, who, who's the church? That's every one of us. And so when he says, if they won't even hear the church, who does that mean God is expecting to try to say something to try to help this brother or sister come home? Every one of us. That is, if we're righteous. If we sit back and we say, I'll pray, but somebody else has got to take care of that. Well, they see only the righteous are going to be involved in helping to restore them. And so while you may sit there and say, well, I'm not involved in all those worldly things, you're also not involved in these good things that God says we need to be involved in. We're not practicing righteousness. We may not be practicing sin, but we're not practicing righteousness when we refuse to do what God would have us to do. Well, you know, I just don't have the stomach for that kind of thing. Well, if it makes you sick to your stomach, here's what God would have you to do then. Under those circumstances, he would say, uh, bring a paper bag with you and go anyway. Because he doesn't give us any excuses not to do what we're supposed to do for our family. How many times has a man or a woman said, I just get sick to my stomach when it comes to changing a diaper. Mm-hmm. But we did it anyway. I've known guys that, you know, they gagged the whole time. You know, they, they would beg their wife, please, no, it's your turn. And why'd the man go ahead and do it? Because he knew it needed to be done. He loved his child. He went through something that was unpleasant because he knew it was what was in the best interest of the child. We had to go through things that may be unpleasant in the spiritual family. Why? Because it's in the best interest of the person whose soul is in jeopardy. Brother Keith Moser tells a story about an individual in a congregation who had been overtaken in a trespass and he had been approached this individual had been approached and begged to repent by individuals and then numbers you know the two or three the and and then it was shared with the church we're about to lose this brother it's now time for the whole church family to get involved, to let them know that we love them. And the entire church family, young and old, went to the yard of this individual's home. The door was knocked upon, and when they opened, the whole church family were on their knees saying, please come home. Now, if a person has any softness left in their heart 
for them to hear something like that, to see something like that, to experience something like that, then (laughs) unless their heart is just completely hard, well, I can say this, if they're not moved to repentance based upon that, nothing's going to move them. It also would take the humility of the church family to be willing to put themselves out there like that. What are the neighbors going to think? They're going to drive in by and all these people, old people, young people, you know, they're on their knees and they're begging, please come home. What are they going to think? Well, you know, we really shouldn't care as much about what they think as we do what God thinks. It may just be an opportunity later when somebody says, I saw you and a bunch of people on your knees. What's going on? Ah, now you've got a teaching opportunity. I've said it every lesson. It's all about going to heaven. It's all about trying to help each other to go to heaven. There's nothing more important in this life, rather, than making sure that you, your family, physical family, your church family, and as many people as you can get to become part of the family to help them go to heaven. That's why it's important that we do know each other. That's why it's important that we do spend time with each other so that when somebody in in the church has been overtaken and trespassed, when somebody is dealing with something, that we, how can you bear one another's burdens if we don't even know what the burdens are? And we're not going to know what those burdens are if the only time we see each other is when we come in here and we have our Christian face on and our Christian clothes. And that's all that we see of each other is Sunday and Wednesday if that's when we're even here. And we say, how you doing? And then we go home and the rest of the week we live the way that we live with the people that we live with. And we only know what we know about each other while we're here. Do you not think there was a reason why when the church began there in Acts chapter 2, we read about how they were meeting together and they were in the homes of one another daily? Why would they want to be around each other? Because they're family. But what happens if they cannot be moved to repent? even after the entire family gets involved. Verse 17, if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church, but if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Now that sounds kind of harsh, like Jesus is saying, "Mm, you know, now you're treating them like, you know, heathens, tax collectors. He's not talking about the fact that we're supposed to, to have some sort of bad attitude towards them. 
What he's trying to get them to realize is what kind of relationship do you have with the heathens and the tax collectors? Well, I don't. Well, why not? Well, the tax collector, that's the guy that steals from me when it's tax time. He comes and he knows how much my tax is supposed to be, but he tells me it's more than what it's supposed to be. I know he's doing that, and he keeps the extra. And, you know, he's just not the kind of guy that after he tells me how much I owe him that I know he's just stole from me that I say, Hey, you want to stay for supper? I don't have a relationship with that man. The heathens, those that don't care whether you have, uh, whether anything good happens to you, they don't care anything about you. They just live for themselves, the pleasure of the moment. They want to do what will make them happy. You know, what kind of relationship do you have with them if you're trying to please God? Jesus said, mm, you don't have one, do you? So what does he mean when he says... If that brother or sister will not hear the church, that the church is to treat them as a heathen or a tax collector. He says your relationship has to change. The relationship that you once shared with them has to change. Why? Because we're trying to get their attention still. We're still trying to get them to change the behavior and come home. We're still trying to help them to go to heaven. Well, how does that take place? By changing this relationship. What does that mean? Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we read about a man there in the church of Corinth who had taken his father's wife away from him. So that would have probably been a stepmother situation. Beginning in verse 4, Paul, when talking about it, has said he's learned about what has taken place and he is really disgusted to say the least, about what has happened. And the fact that the brethren have done nothing about it, he says, beginning in verse 4, In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you're gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan. Well, it doesn't sound to me like he's trying to help this individual. Well, they didn't stop there. Deliver such a one to Satan. Why? For the destruction of the flesh. What does he mean there? Your relationship with him is going to change to the point to where you know, he's no longer comfortable being around you. Why? Why would you want him to be uncomfortable? That his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Well, what am I doing that's going to make him uncomfortable? Am I going to be mean to him? Am I going to say, well, you know, you're a sinner. I can't have anything to do with you. Get away. You know, and I'm making him uncomfortable that way. That's going to make him want to come back home so that his spirit will be saved. Does that sound logical? Second Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 6. Paul says, but we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly. And not according to the tradition which he received from us. Obviously, Paul's not saying as soon as a brother or sister is overtaken in a trespass that you withdraw from them. Obviously, that would be a contradiction. And so what he's saying is you've already gone through the process that the Lord has said. And now it's time that your relationship has to be as one as with a heathen or tax collector. It has to change. Why? Because we're trying to get his attention. So that he'll repent. So that he'll come home. How do we do that? We withdraw from them. 
Well, what does that mean? Well, it means that they're not going to... It means that, what did he call it? The destruction of the flesh. It's going to make him uncomfortable. What's taking place? Well, let's continue here. First Corinthians chapter, or second, second John, uh, verse nine of the only chapter. Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. All right. So this person, if a, if a brother or sisters are not living the way God would have them to live, they don't have God. Well, First John one verse seven. If we walk in the light as He's in the light, we have fellowship with one another. When is it that we have, now remember we're talking, we're trying to figure out what withdrawing fellowship means. If we walk in the light as he's in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ continues to cleanse us of our sin. So, for the blood of Jesus to cleanse us of our sin, we have to be in the light. And the only way we can have fellowship with one another is if, the people whom fellowship can be shared with, they're in the light also. If someone is outside the light, they're in their sin. Christ's blood does not cleanse somebody of sin that they don't want forgiveness of. Ephesians 5 verse 11, And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. A brother or sister is not living as they should. It's not a matter of continuing on in life as though nothing has happened. Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. But do what? Expose them. Is it possible that people in the church family would know of sin and continue right along in a, with a relationship, in a relationship with a brother or sister who's living in sin and never say a word to them and just keep on going like everything is normal? Sadly, yes, that happens. And Paul says, you're not supposed to have fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. Well, what am I supposed to expose them 1 Corinthians 5, verse 11. Paul said, But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother. See, we've been trying to figure out what it means to withdraw our fellowship. Paul says, I've explained that to you. Don't keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or reviler or a drunker or extortioner. If you got a brother or sister who's not willing to repent, we're not to keep company with them. Now let's put it together. Paul said concerning this young man that took his father's wife, he's not wanting to repent. Then he's not. He will not hear the church ask him to repent. Well, then you deliver him to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. To do what? To make the relationship that you've had with him uncomfortable, the one that you, that's non-existent 
such as the heathen or the tax collector. Or why would I want to make his life unpleasant as far as the circumstances so that it will get his attention to make him think the reason why I don't have the relationship that I once had with that brother and sister, the reason why I'm not going golfing with that brother like I do every Friday, the reason why I don't have that fishing partner anymore, the reason why we don't have that home to go to and play cards with anymore, the reason why we're not going out to eat with these folks anymore, the reason why I don't have this relationship with these people that I once had anymore is because they said they want to but they can't because I'm living in sin. And he's miserable if he's got any heart left. The destruction of the flesh. Why would we want them to be miserable? To save their soul. To get their attention. To change their behavior. Not even to eat with such a person. Now, what's he talking about? He's talking about that relationship where it's not a matter of saying, hey, brother, you really ought to be at the church services, you know, and I'm praying for you. I, I believe it's your turn. You're up. Go ahead and hit the ball. Is that the kind of relationship that's going to cause them, that's going to get their attention and make them think, yeah, I really ought to change? Of course not. Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. And if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person. If there's a brother or sister that is not willing to repent after you've done as a church what God would have you to do, we are to note that person, mark that person, and do what? Do not keep company with him. Don't have fellowship with him. You don't, have, you don't keep company with the tax collector or the heathen. You don't have a relationship with them. Why do you not have a relationship with this brother or sister anymore? Because I'm just trying to get their attention. I love them. And every time they think about the fact that, you know, this is Friday night and we used to always go to their house and we'd watch the game together, you know, and, and we're not, and every Friday night that's rolling around and they're going, we don't enjoy that relationship anymore. Why? Because I'm living in sin. He's miserable. Notice what Paul says here, though. Do not keep company with them. Why? That he might be ashamed. Yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. We're not angry with them. We're not trying in any form or fashion to come across as mean-spirited or unloving. To the contrary, the, the, the parent that will chastise their child and inflict pain upon that backside to get their attention aren't doing so because of the fact that they're trying to be mean. They're trying to get that child's attention so that child's behavior will change and be acceptable, be correct. When we do what God tells us to do where our church family is concerned, we're not trying to be mean-spirited or unkind or unloving. To the contrary. That which we do that is unpleasant for everybody concerned 
is done so that we can hopefully get that brother or sister's attention so that we can keep the family together. If we ever come across as, well, you know, if we, if we go ahead and remove fellowship with them, at least I'm not accountable for them anymore. The church has done what... What was the purpose of it? That he might be ashamed. Yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Let's think about this. Let's try to have a practical application. Let's suppose that the congregation from here, wherever you may be from, that are visiting tonight, that the church actually went through the process of trying to get a brother or sister's attention, to try to get them to repent, trying to keep the family together, and they refused all the attempts. And so the church finally doing the last thing that God says to do to try to get their attention, to get their, to keep the family together, is you would draw your fellowship. And here you are in the super Walmart walking down the aisle, and as you're about halfway down, you realize... There's that brother we withdrew from. The Bible says not to have fellowship with them, not even to eat with them. I better get out of here and then just take up. Now, who feels awkward under that circumstance? Well, you're saying, well, I feel awkward. Am I, how am I not going to feel awkward? Well, maybe who's ashamed in that circumstance? You see, he's not our enemy, the Lord instructs us. The whole purpose behind not having that relationship is to be able to get their attention. And so no, I no longer am able to share in that fellowship and doing those things that I once did with them. But since he's not my enemy and since I still want him to come home, what did Paul say to do? Admonish him as a brother. So now what am I going to do? This is the opportunity as we walk towards one another to be able to pause and say, Brother, I still pray for you. I miss you. I love you. Please come home. And then go about your business. Now what did you just do? You did not treat him like an enemy, but you admonished him as a brother. And what's the purpose of admonishing him as a brother? Paul said it is so that he might be ashamed. He's the one that needs to be ashamed. She's the one that needs to be ashamed. Not the person that's admonishing them as a brother. What are they going to do? Go home and tell their spouse, you won't believe what happened. I ran into some of those people from church, you know, brother so-and-so at the church. you know, and, and, and you know what he did? He came up to me and he said he loved me, he missed me, and he wished I'd repent and come back home. And, and, and don't that make you mad? Of course not. You know that if that's what actually takes place is they are admonished with the care and love that we should have for one another. That if there's any softness in their heart whatsoever left, that they're going to be ashamed. And there's still the possibility that they might come home. How do I know that? Well, you know what Paul said concerning that brother, and I believe he's talking about that brother that took his, his father's wife, but the result's still the same. Second Corinthians chapter 2, Paul talks about the result of 
withdrawing fellowship in verses 6 through 8. He says this punishment, notice he refers to it as punishment. This punishment which was inflicted by the majority, and notice he did say the majority. Obviously there were some people in the church family that didn't have the stomach to do what God told them to do. There were some people in the church family that were not spiritual. But he said the majority, this punishment which was inflicted by the majority is sufficient for such a man. So that on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. They were not sharing in that relationship that they once shared with in that man. And he realized by their actions that what he had done was unacceptable. They got his attention. He repented, he came, he said he was sorry, and Paul said, now you reaffirm your love for him. Because you see, if you continue treating him the way that you were treating him, then that, that's going, that could overtake him, it could be too much for him. We need to make sure that rather than continuing that, comfort him. Reassure him that you love him and that he is welcomed back home. Does that really work? Well, if I couldn't give you any examples of it, here's what I have to make sure you understand. That our ways are not God's ways. And these are God's ways. When somebody sits back and says, well, you know, I just don't see how that makes any sense. That if we do that, that's, that's going to help somebody to repent. Well, let me ask you how it's working for you. I've known of, I've known of folks who um, they've got a loved one or a close friend who has gone into sin. And they've continued to share in a relationship with them. And what they'll say is, well, I'm just trying to keep the doors of communication open so that maybe I might be able to do some good or say something that will cause them to want to come back home. How's that worked out for you so far? I've known people who have for years said that's what they were doing. How's it worked out for you? Are they any closer to repenting now than they were when they first committed to sin? I know of a congregation which I was a part of when I was just a teenager. There was a study on church discipline that took place and the elders themselves repented and said, we've not been doing this right. We haven't been showing the attention that we should be showing and helping lead the congregation and doing it the way God would have us to do it so that we would be this family. They said, but you can count on things being different. And there were, there were 25 families of folks who had just disappeared, just had stopped coming over a period of two or three years. Nobody knew why. They just stopped coming. And so the elders began making visits to these families. And... Understandably, to some degree, they were not successful in getting the people to realize that the seriousness of their actions. 
And they got the church involved in trying to get them to come home and with no favorable result. And so fellowship was withdrawn from 25 families. Within six months, 18 of those families came back home. Oh, it won't work. Man's wisdom says it won't work. Brethren, the right way to do things and the only way to do things is the way God has instructed us to do it. It needs to be done quickly and completely from the standpoint of the urgency behind it. Sometimes it's a process that that takes time but the, but people are involved in it urgent, urgently and completely and quickly involved but it may be a process that that nobody can put it well we'll give them this many you know each time they've got this much no it depends on the circumstances let's suppose that you you cut a finger and you go to the doctor and the doctor says you know you need to put this medicine on it. You need to cleanse it every day, put this medicine on it. But I'll tell you right now, if you don't take care of that finger, you may lose it. And so you go home and you say, well, you know, the doctor said if I need to take care of this finger, I need to medicate it and clean it up or I may lose it. And so the next day you look at that finger and you say, well, the doctor said I'm supposed to, I think I'll, I think I'll give it a couple of days before I wash it. I think I'll just give it a little bit of time and see if maybe it'll start getting well by itself. I'll wash it. I'll put some medicine on it, you know, maybe in a few days. But let's just, let's just give it a little bit of time. Now, when you go back to the doctor and it's not any better and he says, wow, that looks terrible. You've been doing what I told you to. Mm, not really. And what was the result you expected? We have someone in our church family that's part of the body who've been hurt. They've been infected. Now what are we going to do with our finger? We are going to, if we are serious about it, we're going to be cleaning it every day. We're going to be medicating it every day. We're going to be paying attention to it. We're going to protect it. We are going to make sure that nothing else happens to it. Why? Because we care about not inflicting any more pain upon that finger. We want it to get well. Do we show the same attention to a brother or sister in Christ who've been infected by sin? Or do we sit back and say, well, they know what's right just like the rest of us knows what's right, you know, and I'll pray for them. I'll pray that they'll repent, you know, and let's just give them a little bit more time. Maybe one more Sunday, see if something changes. In the meantime, the infection just continues to spread. And that's what Paul said about that situation in the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 there when he said, a little leaven leavens the lump. He said, if you don't deal with the infection, then the whole church is going to be infected. 
That's the purpose of delivering that that young man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Not only to protect him, to help him become themselves, but to protect the church family. What if you go to the doctor and the doctor says, yes, the finger's infected, and if we don't remove that finger, it's going to infect the whole, your arm. You could lose your arm, and it'll continue to spread if we don't do something about it, and you could end up losing your life. What would we do if the doctor says, we need to take that finger to save your life? Oh, I just can't bear to think about living the rest of my life without that finger. Now, nobody wants to give up an appendage. But if we know if it's in the best interest of our entire body, we'll make the sacrifice to do what we've got to do. Nobody wants to see one of our brothers and sisters who's a part of the body to have to be removed from it. But if they're infected and they are not willing to take the medicine, then we have to do what's best for the body. And to remove it so that the rest of the body can be whole. Now, physically speaking, we know that appendage can never be replaced. Spiritually speaking, that's the wonderful part. Part of the body can be removed, and by the grace of God, it can be restored. And that is our goal, brethren. That is our goal. To help, to help those who are lost, that are outside of Christ, to become saved, and then to help the saved remain saved. Church discipline, brethren, that's not a dirty word, not a dirty saying. Church discipline means we love one another. Church discipline means I want to help you to go to heaven. And when somebody hears the term or sees it being practiced, if it's understood in the church family what, what discipline is all about, then when they see it being practiced, they say, I understand why they're doing this. I hate it that it's being done. I hate it that it's being done to me. But I understand why it's being done. It's not because they don't care about me. I know it's because they do. Do they? That's what church discipline is all about. Loving one another. If you're here tonight, you're not a child of God. If you're not part of the family that I've just described and trying to help each other to go to heaven, then you need to become one of God's children so you can be part of that family. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? We repent of the sin that's in your life. Come confessing your faith in Jesus. Ask God's Son to be baptized for the remission of your sins. As a child of God, have you sinned and fallen short of His glory? Have you been overtaken in a trespass? Are you here tonight realizing that if the Lord were to return, that you're not ready to face Him in judgment? There's no reason why anybody should go home tonight and lay their head on their pillow without having the confidence that if they die or if the Lord comes back, that you know you're going to heaven. Do you know that? Why? What is there that would cause you to doubt? 
Is it because you know you need to repent of sin? Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. Allow him to lift you up. He wants to lift you up. He's got his hand extended to you to lift you up. He says, here it is. Accept my help. Confess your sin. God, who's faithful and just, will forgive you of the sin. He'll cleanse us of all unrighteousness. God's not willing that any should perish. Not even the brother or sister that we might have to remove our fellowship from. He's not willing that they should perish. But he would have all come to repentance. Do you need to repent? If you have a need, come now while we stand and sing this song.